Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp um, here in the Boston offices of Romulus Capital with the founder and general partner Krishna Gupta. And they have an interesting story, Romulus, partially because it's a fund started on the tail end of a very ambitious uh, um, initiation during the MIT years of Krishna and uh, his partner Neil. And I think it's it's probably one of very few, if, if, if maybe unique in, the, in that sense, that it was born out of the college dorm. And I think there's only another fund, it's actually called the College Dorm Room Fund, um, that was born with that, that sort of proximity to the universities and the innovation that can be found here in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But maybe let's, let's take a step back as we, we like to do um, and we explore the origins of it, you know, because you started so young into the process of looking for great ideas, I guess one of the obvious questions is, why didn't you just start a company first and then go through that? that that's kind of maybe what everyone's wondering. Yeah, sure. Great to be here. Thanks, Carlos. I studied uh, engineering and business at MIT, and I, I entered, and the reason I went to MIT was because of the entrepreneurial culture the university had and has. And, and sort of the unique mix and overlap between engineering and business. Uh, and so when I was there, I had a lot of friends who were engineers who were coming up with ideas. I was coming up with ideas. I knew I always wanted to start a company. I had no idea what I wanted to start. And it was one of these situations where I realized that uh, at the time, a lot of the larger VCs had started to become a little bit like lottery machines, where they would just put down a certain number of bets and hope that things would happen without really getting involved. And so I found myself kind of naturally playing that role with several of these companies and helping them think about strategy and, and customer acquisition, et cetera. Uh, and then I just fell into thinking about, hey, there's this gap. Uh, and back then, this whole idea of seed stage was actually a relatively new concept. It was certainly not its own asset class the way it is today. And so I thought, let me just fill this weird gap that exists between angel and, and sort of big funds provide something that no one else can provide because the angel investors on the other side were a little bit and you know hobbyist investors because just the nature of the business and so that's we that's how we started uh, I, I went I pinged a bunch of law firms one law firm responded they told me this is called a venture capital fund and that's that's how I started I knew nothing about investments or funds or venture capital I just wanted to go build businesses and that really has been our DNA, which is we're builders versus betters. Wow. So, you know, you, you kind of started off describing Romulus as contrarian to the way that traditional funds have have launched in, in the sense that you're bringing a proximity to the founder and moving away from that lottery ticket approach. However, that does bring certain sort of pressures on you in terms of the kind of feedback that maybe founders want and the kind of, of work that they expect you to, to put into into the companies. What, in addition to the capital, do you guys bring uh, to the table? Yeah, I mean, that, that has become uh, an increasingly important question, as you can imagine, yeah. uh, now with, with so much liquidity in the market. At the end of the day, we think about value addition in a broad way. We, we just put ourselves in the shoes of the entrepreneur. Whatever problem needs to be solved, we go solve that. So that that's very much an MIT approach to things, which is let's just go problem solve together mm -hmm. and move outside the world of formalities. Oftentimes, what that just practically means is is hiring, helping whether it's you know chief product officer, VP of sales, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oftentimes, it's around customers. So a lot of our companies end up you know relying upon early partnership or an early big sale to a big enterprise and. I think somehow we've always been very good at helping them navigate that bureaucracy, helping them structure the terms of those partnerships on product, thinking of not about how to build the product, but how to, how to measure what the product is doing. 
It's very easy to get caught up in up and to the right graphs, but really it's a question of which metrics are you really looking at. And then finally, it's also about fundraising. I mean, as, you know, we, we've built a very good network amongst well-respected investors, and we continue to do that, and that ends up being very good for our founders that we work with. Okay. And, you know, we kind of cut straight into the history of Romulus, but there's a lot of other things you've done, right? You, you, you've spent time at McKinsey. You've actually done a film. And, and maybe we can just explore some of the other things that kind yeah. of have shaped the interests and, and sort of the, the, the knowledge base that you have. That you've sure. So, so, you know, I, I, uh, I've, I've sort of been entrepreneurial since a young kid. I started my first little shop when I was five. I think I come from a, a sort of a class of entrepreneurs from India. And at the end of the day, I, I have always had a broad set of interests, but they've all been bound by being contrarian. I, I really, really hate doing what everyone else is doing. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was in high school and I went, I went to a boarding school not far from here. I before that I'd always been a math geek, doing the math Olympiads, etc. When I got there, I broadened my horizons. I went out and made a film in England, actually, on the Roman influence and the creation of the English state. So I like taking on ambitious projects, oftentimes involving getting buy-in from a lot of different people, and I really like crafting my own thing and charting my own path as cliched as that is and I think that's really what led to Romulus because at that time everyone said there's no way this is going to work and in some ways that that fueled my hunger to go build something and that really frankly plays into what we do today as well yeah so one thing you touched upon uh, while you were sharing your your sort of background you said you're a contrarian and I read an article recently I forget who who said this but that there isn't a series a crunch rather that there is an explosion of seed and being that, you know, both Seed Camp and Ramius and, and several of, of, of other peers in, in the industry are in that sort of space, Seed, does the contrarian in you right now say it's too hot, Seed's too hot, and uh, something needs to happen, or Seed's going to evolve outside of what what is typically been known for? What 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 does your contrarian side say about what's going on in the market right now? I mean, it's it's hard to classify Seed as just a broad asset class mm-hmm. without qualification, you know. There's always going to be stuff that everyone ignores and certain people like, right? So just the way the VC industry works as a whole, and seed in particular, is it's always about chasing something that is hot right now. It's very much a herd mentality. I think I think there is way too much capital at seed. I think it's just a product. I'm, I'm a big believer in cycle theory. We're in year seven of a cycle. This is typically what happens, which is you know a lot of dumb money starts flooding the markets. Mm. Hopefully, neither you or I are part mm. of that dumb money. But uh, but you know there's just there is a lot of money out there that is insensitive to um, diligence, insensitive to valuation, won't provide much value, and that's fine. That's great. It fuels a lot of more companies. But the minute the sort of musical chairs stop, you know I think we'll see a lot of that exit. And so I'm not really concerned about, I mean, I would love for, for the market to crash in some ways because I think it would just rationalize the whole space more and make our job a lot easier. I mean, when I compare now to 2008 when I started, uh, back then, you know, I, I really didn't have to deal with a lot of the noise. There were just the best people starting companies and everyone else was doing what they were best suited to do. And then they were just the best investors. Uh, and oftentimes, actually, a lot of these best investors wouldn't even look at companies. I mean, I had a company come out of the MIT Media Lab back then, and I could not find anyone else to put in even ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars into the into the company. Mm-hmm. Today, you take any company out of the Media Lab, no matter how poor the quality might be, and it'll easily raise four hundred thousand dollars, right? 
I think that that to me shows what's going on, and that will not sustain. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, it's always a tricky thing, um, especially when you're when you're looking across different geographies. And one of the questions that sometimes founders from abroad have is, should they fly over here to tap into that probability in accessibility to capital? What what's your view on on sort of the Boston or the, or the East Coast investor base looking increasingly abroad as a way of, of raising uh, maybe the discernment in, in terms of deal flow? Well, first of all, like I said, investing and most investors are very much a um, kind of herd-like mentality. So it's all about FOMO. Yeah. So oftentimes it's not worth the while for, for entrepreneurs to fly over and try to raise money because they're never going to be able to generate that FOMO, that fear of missing out. Yeah amongst these investors. We'll just keep doing deals amongst people they know and they hear about because that's just what they hear about. Now, there is a, there's a different side to that, which is a lot of funds have raised a lot of money and they are under pressure to deploy that capital. And so increasingly, they have to look outside. And oftentimes that's true, especially with, I would say, second tier uh, firms. But on the large side, at the seed side, it's a little bit different. But on the large side, you know, there is a lot of liquidity, a lot of capital. And I would say if you're a, you're an entrepreneur, there's no reason why you shouldn't capitalize on that, especially if a big impetus of that is to, to move to the U.S. If you want to tackle the U.S. partner, uh, I always advise being discerning in terms of the partner you're choosing as an investment firm. But, you know, sometimes an individual partner and you will click really well and, and he or she understands your market very well. And they have a lot of liquidity, and yep. that, that's all you need. So I think you have to look beyond just the usual suspects sometimes. Brand, especially in VC, doesn't always mean the best fit for you and, and sort of the right quality for you. And there's a lot of firms that have been raised over the last three years, 50, 60, 100, 200 million dollar type firms that have a lot of dry powder and are looking for deals. Mm. Yeah, brand, I agree with you. Like, brand isn't necessarily always the end all be all. There's a lot of capability that the partner that you're working with need to bring to the table. Otherwise, it's, it's just money that you're taking without the, the, the value add. You've invested in how many companies now? Probably across the seven years, we've done maybe 30-ish companies. 30-ish companies. If you look back at some of the mistakes that you've made sort of earlier, not in terms of mistakes as an investment, since investments have their own lives, but in terms of the kinds of mistakes that you see founders make over and over again, and how you reacted to them. You might react to them differently now, but maybe if you, if you put yourself in the, in, the, in the mind of the listener, who might be a, a young founder, thinking maybe about coming and raising money in the US, maybe not, uh, maybe just trying to approach a seed stage venture, what are the mistakes that you see that classically create problems for founders? Well, I think short-term thinking in general is, is deadly. Um, and and it, it, the, the, the most deadly part about short-term thinking is that sometimes it's not deadly. Every now and then it's not deadly. And so when I look at, you know, we, we very much believe in building to last. That's kind of a mantra that we echo around here. And a lot of times when you're short-term in your approach, you think, let me go raise a lot of capital and let me expand to as many customers or as many markets as I can. When sometimes the right thing actually to do is focus on your initial customer make sure that they implement well, make sure that your you know, initial market, call it, and make sure that your unit economics makes sense, right? Uh, and these days, of course, everyone's talking about unit economics, but it's really just a fundamental part of doing good business in our perspective. So we, we don't mind slower growth to some extent if we nail down unit economics. We've seen a lot of companies blow up because they raise too much capital or they try to grow too quickly 
and all because they want to try to boost the valuation in a short period of time or exit in a short period of time. Every now and then, that will work, and that's what's so you know so deadly about that short-term thinking. So on the on the growing too quickly, internationalization is a big thing for companies that are especially born outside of the U.S. What have you seen works well? for a foreign-based entity that comes over here and sets up HQ, let's say, in Boston, New York, to, to sort of launch into this market? What, what has worked? I think the most important thing when you're doing that is to have an anchor customer, uh, if you're B2B. Um, if you're B2C, I think it's, it's just really hard because, yeah, the only thing that works there is having an anchor investor that has a very deep pool of capital. And that's true, I think, in B2C in general. Oftentimes, it, there's, the barriers to entry are so low that, that you, it's just a game of who can raise more capital. Um, in a shorter period of time. But the B2B side, which I think a lot of the companies perhaps are, um, it's about getting an anchor customer uh, down almost before you even go uh, go across. Mm. I think that's easier said than done, obviously. It's really, really hard to, to sort of win a customer. But even if you can get a pilot, uh, and sometimes that's a question of, of the investment firm that you choose, you know, I, I would say try before you buy in some ways. Work with the firm, see if they can make some intros, particularly to some of these star customers, and then sort of make that decision. Because sometimes it, you, you can destroy your company, and I've seen that happen, uh, you know, destroy your company by moving across the pond. And I've also seen, obviously, some great success stories. Mm. In terms of success stories, uh, because you have such a, a diversified portfolio, maybe you would like to highlight maybe one of the companies that has had an interesting story of maybe expansion, contraction, or you know, pivot, something that would perhaps be inspirational for, for a founder to hear in terms of the challenges that ultimately led to sort of a, a, a rosier road after, after the transition. Yeah. Well, one of our companies is called uh, Playster. They provide software for real estate agents and brokers around the country. You know, the founder is a very interesting guy, Matt he worked his way through college being a real estate agent himself and he's been coding since a very young age so kind of saw the opportunity while he was an agent to sort of bring a smarter tool set to their professional lives uh, that mirrors what they're seeing in their personal lives and so you know initially the company thought we we're gonna build websites for agents and we're gonna charge for that and they did that and, and it's, it's actually non-trivial to build websites for, uh, for real estate agents because you have to build the back-end uh, data set of MLSs, multiple listing services, of which there's several hundred in the US and each one requires integration period. So it took us two to three years to do that. But the websites, we, you know, it turned out we thought we'd charge you know, a fair amount, call it $100, $100 per month or something like that. And so we thought we could build a pretty sizable business just on the websites alone. And what we, what we quickly realized that that price point was becoming pretty high for these agents. They had options outside of Playster that perhaps didn't provide the same functionality, but were much, much cheaper. Or the opposite, provided amazingly good functionality, were much more expensive. And so we were kind of caught in this middle ground where we were neither here nor there. Um, and then we made, a, you know, we were sort of, our growth was stalling a little bit. And then we made a pretty bold decision to just completely drop the price to almost free on the website's product. Um, and we did that not because we didn't believe in the value of the product, but we just felt like there was, we realized there's so much more to build on top of that website product that we hadn't even thought about before. Once we were seeing these customers come through the door, we realized that their problem set expanded well beyond just the sort of front-facing website. 
uh, and, and went into marketing automation and CRM and all this other stuff. And so that's what we did. And that enabled uh, a lot of good progress. We signed a partnership, uh, an exclusive partnership with the National Association of Realtors last year, which made us the sort of exclusive vendor for websites. And then we, you know, two months ago, signed an exclusive partnership with Keller Williams, which is the largest brokerage in the U.S. with 120,000 agents. And we just signed on Remax, uh, one of their largest franchisees in the U.S. So the, the progress has been great. You know, the company raised a Series B led by NEA a few months ago. We led their Series A, NEA led their Series B. Uh, and it's just been uh, up and to the right. And, and, you know, the most important thing is the customers love our product. They can buy it very quickly and they get a chance to see and, and play with the product at a low price point. And almost, you know, universally, then they, they decide to upgrade mm-hmm. um, to the more advanced feature set. So, but there was a time in that company's history where it was not clear whether we would really ever be able to scale the business because we were really encountering some headwinds at the price point we were at and you know there's there's sort of no return from a price drop right once you once you slash your prices you cannot go back and increasing them so it was a bold move but but you know as i'm sure a lot of people know all of the successful stories involve a series of bold moves so sometimes that's what you have to do and honestly it helps a lot when your investor is in lockstep and aligned with you well that's exactly what i wanted to jump to next which was you, you shared that story very much like the way that perhaps the CEO would share the story, you know, as a decision made. But in fact, a lot of founders know that those decisions are very hard to make in isolation. You have other stakeholders and those stakeholders invested in you on a business plan that had a specific price point or a specific uh, expectation for number of sales. And and they might be upset at, at your performance on the go-to-market rather than actually doing the analysis that you've just made for us saying that actually you got stuck between two parts of the market. It wasn't that the go-to-market was was poorly executed, that the sales staff wasn't selling well enough. Can you share with us maybe that how that, if we, if we sort of reverse to that board meeting where that decision was made, and, and for those founders that are listening that, that might be in that same situation where there is a, a necessary pivot, were there other shareholders in that room that were opposed to that idea of sort of stripping all that value that you had pegged and how was that overcome? What, what's the best recommendation you have for a founder who's going through that decision process? Well, first of all, I hate board meetings. So in general, we, you know, I try to keep up a very conversational and, and more natural cadence of communication and interaction with our founders, which means sometimes we, we, we're not needed at all. And sometimes, you know, we're very much in the room. And so this decision was, was really made, I think, in a Friday afternoon, and I was just sitting down with the founder one-on-one and, and you know I think he had sort of been contemplating this for some time and and brought it up and you know I think the reason why I'm able to put myself in the founder's shoes is, is frankly because you know I had to found my own firm and I've been in that you know that situation many times our first fund we thought we'd raise a million and it took us you know two plus years to raise 800,000 and there's been several times when we've we've realized that there's a mismatch in terms of what our investors think should happen and what we think should happen as, as sort of being in the operator's shoes. So I'm very flexible and open-minded because at the end of the day, the operator is, is living and breathing that business every day. And the insights that he or she has will surely trump my own in one aspect. And then the other aspect, it's important, obviously, to be disciplined and sort of have an outsider's perspective. And so as we try to balance that in this situation, it was all about, you know, how do we build a big business? I mean, when Matt first approached me, he was very clear that he wanted to build a really big business. And so 
I think if the objective, and this is why it's so important to be aligned, whatever your objective is with your investor, if the objective was, let's go build a business that was worth tens of millions of dollars, maybe we could have actually continued down that path and, and we probably could have scaled it to enough of a you know, sort of extent and maybe layered on some stuff on top of that that we could have built a business that would be acquired for tens of millions of dollars. But I think if we really wanted to build a business that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, that just wouldn't have worked. And, and I, I knew that right away. It, it didn't take him much explanation because I, I was so close to the business already that I, I could sort of see where he was coming from very quickly. And I think it was very easy. Once, once we sort of, it was obviously something we needed to think about for some time. But, you know, it, it just took me a couple of calls with the founder and a couple of meetings to really understand that there's a much bigger opportunity out there. And to be honest, we did not know what that bigger opportunity looked like. So it was not like a roadmap that we had. But we did know that there was a much bigger opportunity. There's $12 billion being spent digitally on real estate marketing today in the U.S. Mm. A small percentage of that pie means a lot of money. Mm. Uh, and we wanted to go after that. And, and I guess it's safe to assume that you left enough time for him to execute that new strategy. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, you know, then that's really important thing is that a lot of times founders and investors have this relationship where founders are very scared of, of sharing bad news or what might be perceived as bad news with investors. And, and then you reach a situation where bad news is really only shared when it's too late to act upon. And I really tried to um, engage the entrepreneurs as, as sort of peers mm. um, and make them feel like there will be times when things have not gone according to plan. Because there will be. There's never been a company in history that has executed exactly to the plan they told their seed investors. That's just not possible. So the, the sooner everyone realizes that, I think more sophisticated investors know that, and they and, and perhaps probably the best investors, which which I try to emulate, they, they build that relationship uh, with their entrepreneurs where it, it, it's very easy going because they know that flexibility and agility is actually the best path to success. Mm. No, sounds good. Okay, so maybe to, to wrap things up, for, for founders who are looking to get in touch with you, what are the things that, that maybe the top three things that you find attractive in a business such that people can at least self-qualify before they reach out to you? Yeah, sure. So we really, really like, obviously, you know, teams that are just the best at what they do. Uh, and everyone says that. But if you look at a lot of our teams, they're, they're usually a combination of people that complement each other very well. And even our team, that's what, that's how we've built ourselves. So that's one. Two, we, I would say we center more on B2B or B2B2C. We like being able to build. And I think a lot of times at the consumer-type companies, at the seed stage, it's just hard to tell. We, f- we feel like we're throwing darts. Maybe there's people who are better at that than we are. Mm. So we like vertical plays a lot. You know, real estate IT, like we talked about, construction IT, healthcare IT, restaurant IT, Things and then that leads to my third point: things that can really be scaled to a meaningful extent. So we, you know, we'll stay away from SMB type plays unless they're highly verticalized, where we think there's a scalable strategy to tack that. And then I guess above all, we have to really believe that we can add value. And that that might sound kind of cliched, or it might sound like we're we're playing to the audience. But at the end of the day, the kind of relationship we build and the time of kind of kind of time that we invest in our companies is really not worth it if we don't believe we can add value to the business. So yeah, that, that ends up being a pre-qualification. We've turned down deals that we thought were really interesting and had all the other things, but we just didn't feel like we understood the business well enough or could add enough value. Cool. Well, 
thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to meet all of your teams and meet you again. Excellent. All right, guys, until next time. Bye.